So Nehemiah chapter 12 at verse 1. This is God's holy word. These were the priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Yeshua. Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malach, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Ido, Ginnathon, Abijah, Mijamin, Moadiah, Bilcha, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Shalu, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, and Jediah. These were the leaders of the priests and their associates in the days of Joshua. The Levites were Yeshua, Binu, Kadmael, Sherebiah, Judah, and also Madaniah, who, together with their his associates, was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. Bakbukiah and Uni, their associates, stood opposite them in the services. Yeshua is the father of Joachim, Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joyada, Joyada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. In the days of Joachim, these were the heads of the priestly families, of Sariah's family, Meriah, of Jeremiah's Hananiah, of Ezra's Meshulam, of Amariah's Jehohanan, of Malok's Jonathan, of Shechaniah's Joseph, of Haram's Adna, of Marathos Helkai, of Ido's Zechariah, of Ginnathon's Meshulam, of Abijah's Zikri, of Minamin's and Modiah's Piltai, of Bilga's Shamua, of Shemaiah's Jehonathan, of Joyarib's Matani, of Jediah's Uzai, of Salu's Kalai, of Amok's Eber, of Hilkiah's Hashabiah, of Jediah's Nethanel. The heads of the family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Joyada, Johanan, and Jadua, as well as those of the priests, were recorded in the reign of Darius the Persian. The family heads among the descendants of Levi up to the time of Johanan, son of Eliashib, were recorded in the book of the Annals. And the leaders of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, and their associates, who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the other, as prescribed by David, the man of God. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the gates. They served in the days of Joachim, son of Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, it was beyond making assembly line automobiles, that Henry Ford was famous for saying, history is bunk. Uh, 
know if you've heard that saying before. History is bunk. In 1916, he was interviewed by Charles Wheeler for the Chicago Tribune, and Henry Ford said this, What do I care about Napoleon? What do we care about what they did 500 or 1,000 years ago? I don't know whether Napoleon, Napoleon did or did not try to get across, and I don't care. It means nothing to me. History is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present, and the only history that is worth a tinker's dam is the history we make today. Well, there are many who think along the lines of Henry Ford. I see some students smiling. I wonder if history is one of your favorite classes at school. You know, we need to be careful because there is an increasing disinterest and even distaste for history in our society. The only thing that history now seems to be good for is as an easy target for critical theories of one kind or another. But you know, this this uh, disinterest or opposition to history doesn't need to be ancient history. I read just this afternoon that Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island, who was raised in a godly covenanter, Scottish Presbyterian home, when he attended, eventually, Edinburgh University, he, along with some like-minded young men, formed a club one of the rules of which was this, ignore everything our parents taught us. That's what we think of what is in the past. It doesn't have to be ancient. It can be the history of what you learned from your parents. Ignore everything our parents taught us. But what do we lose when we lose history? Without history, we lose a valuable way to be properly self-critical. Because it's easy to think, we who are alive today must be right, simply because we are alive today. That's really what it comes down to. What C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We can be overly... uh, proud and self-confident without a proper understanding of history. Also, ignoring history often means we are deficient in gratitude. How did we get to where we are? I didn't invent the clock or the computer chip or the CAT scan machine. And I enjoy so many things today in my life because of people in history. How much we owe to those who have gone before us. Not only their inventions, but their labors, literally their blood, sweat, and tears. Today's the 12th of June. We're just a week past the 6th of June the anniversary of D-Day. 
1944 and the generation that witnessed the blood-soaked beaches of Normandy and the liberations, the freedoms that resulted. But that generation is dying away. And so is much of the appreciation for it. Do you know, friends, biblical Christians should be the last people on the face of the earth to despise history. Because our salvation is founded upon an historical Jesus who lived and died and rose again in history. Christianity is not just a nice idea or a helpful moral attitude. It's not just the best of the myths that are out there. J. Gresham Machen, in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, which is really, I think, required reading for us, said the liberal preacher who didn't believe in even a historical Jesus, that Jesus really needed even to live or a literal resurrection, but just as ideas, it can be helpful. The liberal preacher is really rejecting the whole basis of Christianity, which is a religion founded not on aspirations, but on facts, historical facts. Isn't this just what Paul was emphasizing in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. You know, last week we celebrated communion at the command of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. And at communion especially, we remember our Lord, particularly in his cross and in his resurrection. We remember and at the same time proclaim, don't we, the Lord's death until he comes again. That assumes his resurrection, that he's alive. Cross and resurrection, real events in history. If Jesus really didn't die and really didn't rise again, we are the most pitiful of all people because we're living our lives based on those realities. Do you know our text this afternoon in Nehemiah 12 reminds us, it teaches us that our historical remembering goes beyond remembering our Lord. It doesn't go above him ever, but it goes beyond just him to the importance of remembering those whom he uses as he builds his church. Nehemiah 12 begins, the first 26 verses to a large part, begins with another list of names. And boys and girls, you may have said, oh, another list of names. All these names. What, what possible usefulness is sitting here this afternoon listening to all those names? Well, this list of names 
has a particular aspect to it, a particular historical flavor to this particular list of names. Because in verses 1 through 26 of Nehemiah 12, which covers the names of of priests and Levites and those who served in the temple, if we look closely at the names and the people to whom these names are connected, we see that this list of names covers a span of over a century, a hundred years. It begins with those who return from the exile in Babylon in 538 B.C. under Cyrus, who came with Zerubbabel, and it lists those who came with Ezra and down through the decades until the days of Nehemiah under Artaxerxes, likely with some of the names, commentators tell us, down to the reign of Darius II in 423 B.C. Names that cover over a 100 years of history. In verses 7, 12, 22, and 23, the Hebrew has the phrase, in the days of. In the days of. And then it gives a name. We should be in the days of Christians. We should be interested to what God says about people and how God uses people in history, in the days of, instead of being exclusively focused on today. Now, we should be in the days of Christians, not in a wrong way. It's possible to live that out in a wrong way. Sometimes people in the church can be people who work at upper, like people who work at Upper Canada Village. Have you ever been to Upper Canada Village, kids? What a place. You notice it as soon as you walk in there. They're dressed differently. They're doing different kinds of things. They act differently. They talk differently. Sometimes Christians can be like that. Wanting or trying to live in a previous time in the church. Wanting to live, trying to live with the reformers in the 16th century or with the Puritans in the 17th century or with Wesley and the Methodists in the 18th century or with Spurgeon and McShane in the 19th century or even wishing and wanting and trying to live in the days of our grandparents or parents perhaps in the 20th century. Now, the Bible abides. Not one jot or tittle needs to be changed or should be changed. Its message and its methods, primarily, its primary methods, the means of grace, are always relevant. We can be confident of that. The Word of God is the unchanging foundation in any generation of the church. But the ministry of the gospel needs to be to the world that we live in, not a bygone age. 
there are sometimes, you know, you hear stories of graduates from seminary <clears throat> who enter a, their first pastor in their first congregation and they, they spend so much time railing against the errors of the Socinians, you know, in the, in the 16th century. There's nothing new under the sun. There are Socinians today. But identify them for who they are instead of trying to live in the past. We want to avoid, of course, a contextualizing of doctrine just to tickle people's ears. But we need to apply and pray that we can apply the unchanging truth of God's word to the people that we meet. And just be fully living in the time that God has called us to live. William Still, the Scottish pastor, said, The word is always contemporary, but the word ministered in the manner and setting of other ages without contemporary application is doubly unsuitable to our age in that it speaks to a bygone age and therefore fails to speak to our own so when we talk about being Christians who appreciate history, we need to watch out for trying to live in another day other than our own. But remembering that, we should be in the days of Christians, remembering, learning from, and being thankful for those who have gone before us. Derek Kidner says of Nehemiah 12, Unexciting as the first half of this chapter is, it has a point to make by its refusal to treat bygone generations as of no further interest. These are names that live decades and even a century before the contemporaries of the day. But they were recorded. They were to be remembered. Now, not all names of individuals are known in the Bible or in church history. Sometimes people are referred to very generically. A man of God came and did this and said that. The vast majority, the vast majority of Christians throughout the ages are unnamed and unknown. We sometimes get the wrong idea because, you know, we know all these famous names from history, maybe famous preachers and that. You know, for every one Spurgeon, there were hundreds of thousands of ordinary pastors preaching in little congregations that nobody remembers their name. Nobody. But there they were, trusting God, serving, laboring, loving God, loving their neighbors, working in the kingdom. The vast majority of Christians who have labored in Christ's church are unnamed and unknown except to Jesus. Jesus, the king who called them and equipped them and sovereignly enabled 
them to be his servants and to serve him in their generation. Jesus knows. I often think of the widow in Mark 12. Nobody noticed her. They were looking at the Pharisees putting in their large offerings. Nobody was looking at that widow that day. Boys and girls, except whom? Jesus. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. We don't know her name, but we know her. 2,000 years of church history has known her because Jesus noticed her. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Every faithful servant of God in every generation receives a well done when his or her work on this earth is done. So here is this list of names that God obviously wants the people in uh, the days uh, of the Old Testament to remember, that he wants us then, in a sense, to remember as well. This list of names that, that covers over a 100 years of life and history of the church. I just have three practical lessons for us tonight out of this unexciting list of names. First, be thankful. Be thankful for those who have gone before us in the church. They are part of that great cloud of witnesses. I mentioned the race weekend this morning, the Ottawa race weekend. What a difference it makes to run a race in front of a cheering crowd. Even if, even if your time is not that stellar, to have people ring a cowbell or cheer you on or give you a high five can probably lead to your getting a personal best in your time. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in the church. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We only need the Lord. Even if we were completely alone, the Lord would be enough. But then he goes on to say, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Be thankful for those who have gone before us. Learn about the previous generations of God's people in biblical history. Familiarize yourself. Take time. Be deliberate to read subsequent church history. Read Christian biography so that the names 
become attached to a life. I find myself reading Christian biography now almost more than any other area of my Christian reading outside the Bible. I find it so helpful, so encouraging, so humbling. My most recent book of church history is a little book called Swift and Beautiful, referring to the feet of those who bring good news. Swift and Beautiful by David Calhoun, I think. And it mentions some of the great, well-known missionaries in the Christian church, David, the David Livingstons, the Mary Slessers. But he also has wonderful chapters on, for me, completely unknown. They were unknown to me. Lesser-known servants of Christ in previous generations. Like Bob Childress. Bob Childress in the early... 1900s, who could have taken a huge city congregation who, who preached to the great politicians of his day and yet went to the mountains of Virginia to preach to the hill people. Buffalo Mountain was where he called home. The writer, the author says, not infrequently he found himself facing an angry moonshiner or someone who despised him for some other reason. One night, Bob was driving home from a late church service when four men flagged him down as if they wanted a ride. The moment he stopped, they pulled him out of the car. What is it you want of me? He asked. We're just a-going to kill you, is all, said one of them. And when he saw that each was armed with a long knife, Bob was sure they meant it. He said calmly, Well, if you're going to kill me, that ought to be easy, for there are four of you. But let me have a prayer before I die. He went down to his knees and prayed out loud, for the four men, for their eternal souls, for their families, and for all the people of the mountains who had never learned to love. He concluded with the Lord's Prayer, asking the four men to join him. But there was no sound from them until he finished when he heard a single amen. He got to his feet And no one moved. The men had sheathed their knives. So he asked them if they wanted a ride. And they all climbed in. Bob Childress. I didn't know his name. But I'm thankful to have met him in church history. Or closer to home. How many people do you know in the church, even in our church circles, outside of your own family, perhaps, from a hundred years ago? Not many, if any. But on June 24th, 1904, June 25th, 
1904, twin girls were born in Almont. Dolly and Evelyn Burns were their names. They were born so small that they were not expected to live. Their mother laid them in shoe boxes beside the wood stove to keep them warm. That was the neonatal intensive care unit, Lanark style. They lived to the ages of 98 and 103. And I'm told by reliable sources that they prayed until the day they died. They prayed for the church in Canada. Even when only two congregations remained, Almont and Lohiel, they prayed. They prayed Rich Gans to Ottawa in 1980. I don't think it is overstating it to say they prayed all of our congregations into existence. And here we are. And there were they. Be thankful. Be thankful. Secondly, be encouraged. Be encouraged. These names in Nehemiah 12 cover not only times, but seasons of life. Not just years, but circumstances. There is a time to plant and a time to harvest. There is a time of tearing down and a time for building up. Later in Nehemiah 12, we're going to come to the dedication of the walls and the great joy that that was for the people in that day. But many of the names early in Nehemiah chapter 12 lived and worked and died long before that was finished. Ted Donnelly so helpfully says, most of these men, the earlier names in Nehemiah 12, never lived to see it, the dedication of the wall. They passed their lives in hardship, and weakness with little positive seeming to happen. Their years were spent among the dispiriting ruins of the city walls. But they had been faithful. In times of discouragement, they had kept alive the flame of trust and devotion. So when the work was finally completed, they were not forgotten. God, in his kindness, includes them in his permanent role of honor. Their share in the work was recognized. They had, as it were, laid the foundations. And foundations are not seen once the building is completed. But where would the building be without them? It may be our lot to be foundation builders working for God in discouraging circumstances. Some of us may see little happening in our congregations, but our task is to build solidly and deeply. 
Every period of blessing for the church has been preceded by the faithful witness of earlier generations who lived and died obscurely. But the eventual progress would not have come if they had given up. Be encouraged. And lastly, and most briefly, be abounding in the work of the Lord in our day. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. Robert Murray McShane said, live so as to be remembered. Not in a proud way, but be abounding in the work of the Lord. In the Lord. Be part of someone else's. Be part of a future generation's cloud of witnesses. That's a, that's a, an honorable, godly goal to have. God help me to live a life in my generation so that my children and my children's children will be able to tell their children and their children's children about grandpa and grandma and paka and oma and my aunt and my uncle. Or Mr. So-and-so that I knew in our church whose seat was never empty. And who just came up to me one day when I was a young boy and said, how are you doing? And I know he loved me. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. Be another generation's cloud of witnesses. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.